Hi there, and welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, on this uh, journey into the world of natural-style botanical aquariums and blackwater aquariums and all the kind of cool aquariums that uh, get us all geeked out and excited. And funny, I'm going to have to actually think of a new... Um, new introduction to this blog because it seems like I keep adding new things to what we do, right? So, well, maybe you can come up with something and let me know if you do. I really appreciate all the uh, the uh, nice uh, mentions that people have been giving and the support of this uh, podcast. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, as you can tell, it's been a relatively new adventure for me, but we're now coming up on 25 people, you know, podcasts and um, just a lot of fun to uh, add another dimension and get the uh, the tint to you guys in a different format. So thanks again for your support. Now, today I want to talk about something that's probably pretty obvious to some of you, but it's something that came up in a discussion the other day and I thought it was kind of interesting. With our focus on, you know, the botanical style natural aquariums, there's this explosion of all these discoveries and unlocks and sometimes even game-changing paradigm shifts. I mean, with any new hobby adventure, we tend to bring along much of what we already know already. And as we discussed ad nauseum, the husbandry techniques, the maintenance practices we've learned in other areas of the hobby have absolutely served us really well here. And they might evolve or change somewhat to fit the needs of the specific aquatic habitats that we try to represent. However, there's some things like our fish selections which really don't need to change. In fact, I don't think they should really. We need to take along many of our old friends for the ride, really. We're so caught up in looking for the newest and rarest that we may often overlook that, you know, fish that's right in front of us. It got me thinking, what's cooler, an ultra-rare pleco or an embuna or a, a fantastic specimen of a common fish like the Glowlight Tetra? One of those fishes that's inspired so much passion for the hobby for so long, yet maybe perhaps displayed in a natural style aquarium perfectly a perfectly unedited representation of their natural habitat i know i know first thing you think of when you hear the words common fishes are those regulation issue translucent gray blood fins or boring assorted cyclosoma or dull silvery covered barbs or whatever the so-called so-called dirt brown quarries or non-distinctive sword tails or generic neon tetras take on a whole new look when you keep them in conditions that represent the conditions that they've evolved in under millions of years, right? Not just aesthetically, but from a physical or environmental standpoint as well. So when you see that dirt brown quarry in an aquarium which resembles its natural habitat in form and in function, suddenly it makes sense why the fish looks the way it does and perhaps even acts the way it does. And it usually looks pretty spectacular. There's something about context which makes all the difference in the world, isn't it? In a new light. Now, how about fostering truly gorgeous specimens of these so-called common fishes? How about creating an aquarium based on their specific needs or replicating aspects of their natural habitat? Like, why not create an aquarium specifically for the good old head and tail like tetra or the glass catfish, for example? Yeah, so-called common fishes, old friends, if you will. Now, when you give an old friend the star treatment, anything's possible, right? Think back to the beginnings of your hobby experience and think what you, what you could do with those so-called basic fishes with your evolved skill set, mental shift-optimized attitude, and your experience. Uh, want a personal example? I've got one for you. Um, here's a beloved beginner's fish. God, I hate that term, right? I was just thinking, how do you like to be called a beginner's fish? What the hell does that mean, anyway? I mean, every fish wants to survive, needs specific environmental conditions, etc. I guess the word beginners is a little bit weird. Anyway, I'm digressing. So as a kid, I think one of the most memorable, you know, fishes in my first aquarium, 
um, and which, you know, had the, the requisite uh, blue gravel and, uh, you know, plastic plants, was the uh, group that I had of eight zebra danios. And they would race back and forth in the tank, you know, at high speed. And I was just enthralled. I mean, it was cool. And I've never forgotten how much I loved the zebra danio. Like, I loved every danio, but I really loved the zebras. Haven't kept them in years. And the amazing thing about this fish is it's probably the most bulletproof species you can ever keep. In fact, I did a little research. So I found out that its so-called tolerated temperature range based on the wild type localities is something like... 76.2 degrees to as high as 101.5 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 24.6 to 38.6 Celsius. I mean, if that isn't a broad range, nothing is. And it tolerates, you know, water with a pH from 6.0 to 8.0. Yeah, these guys are hardly what you would call a fussy fish. I mean, these are bulletproof. And you know me, once I hear that, I get weird ideas like, well, what if I mimic the natural conditions of the natural habitat? Now, I'm not talking about 100 degree temperatures, mind you. I'm talking about the water conditions and so forth. Other than that, I keep wondering, are they going to do better? Is there some advantage somewhere? I think like this for a lot of fishes, perhaps as if to shun the fact that like, what, 90% of what we keep has never been in a river, a pond or a stream. But I don't know, it's just irresistible to me to think about this stuff. You know, you take the most common of aquarium fishes and give them throwback conditions, seeing if it somehow awakens something in their genetic code that's been in their, you know, DNA for eons. I mean, it's kind of silly, I guess. There's so many other things to do in the hobby, yet I can't help but wonder if we can learn something from replicating some of these aspects of their long-forgotten wild habitats. I mean, the zebra daniel, what's really interesting to me is the habitats in which these fishes are found. And in fact, they're increasingly hard to find, so... Apparently, man is doing his thing and uh, threatening those habitats, which is sad. But typically, they're found in northern India, and this area is subject to seasonal rainfall. Sounds familiar, right? Between the months of June and September due to the monsoon, and the water levels and the characteristics of the water vary, you know, can vary differently, significantly, sorry, during different times of the year. I'm like tongue twisted. It must be early. Um, They're often found in check this out, inundated rice paddies and marginal pools with that silty kind of turbid water with very little movement, which is not what you'd think of when you think of a neon, or excuse me, a zebra daniel. Now, during the dry times of the year, they spend their time in calm, shaded areas of streams with rocky substrates. That's really interesting because it reminds me a bit of the Amazon Igarape thing, you know, where you have the rain. Instead of the rainforest, you got rice paddies. And I've been playing with rice seeds and silted substrates and turbid water conditions lately, haven't I? Hmm. So my simple thought on this guy is the fish seems to hang out in what we as hobbyists would think of as, oh, less desirable conditions for much of the year. You know, the silty rice paddies. And it spends the dry season in the more permanent, less turbid streams. Like, why would this be? Is there some advantage? Like food, better substrates for breeding? Is there protection? You know, why the turbid water? What does it bring to the fishes? Is there minerals or something that it that it brings? What would the advantage be to keeping a fish like the zebra in different conditions, even at different times of the year, just like in nature? Or just simply a tank representing one of the two, you know, the two types of habitats it's found in. Would you want or even need to? I mean, the fish has been captive bred for like a century, but I can't help but wonder why these fishes live the way they do in the wild. What advantages do these hold for the fish? These are the kind of things that get me excited. Would you get different behaviors, colors, health, spawning out of the fish by doing this seasonal transition? 
you know, using like very fine substrates versus uh, gravel, you know, maybe mixing in some mud or something to replicate those rice patties, you know, with the pump returns turned down real low, angled at the bottom, maybe to stir up sediments and, you know, stimulate turbidity. Again, why you ask? And I think my answer is it'd just be kind of cool, weird, but cool, right? Am I the only one that imagines stuff like this? I, maybe? I wonder. And second thought, don't answer that. I probably am, but you know what? It's cool. And I know this fish is bred by the billion in fishes, you know, in fish farms all over the world, as are many of the much sexier domesticated strains of its relatives. But wouldn't it be interesting to see what happens when you repatriate these common fishes to an uncommon execution of their natural habitats? Yeah, that idea kind of entices me. I've been playing a lot lately with more realistic interpretations of my beloved habitat, the Brazilian Igapo, which, as you know, I'm completely obsessed with for some reason. And I'm wondering if by nuancing the executions of these physical environments, we provide even common fishes, perhaps, with an environment that can really trigger some unlocks in their behavior or their health or something. Looking at these old friends in a new light is kind of exciting. The other day I had an occasion to talk to our friend uh, Ty Streitman, who you know from many of our photos on social media. If you follow our Instagram feed, he's taken a lot of really cool underwater igarape and pentanol photos for us, so you get to see those unique flooded habitats. Uh, He does a lot of time diving there. He's doing his postgraduate work, and I I believe it's ichthyology. Forgive me, Ty, if it was ecology or something else, but I believe it's ichthyology. So he sees a lot of fishes. He literally swims with the fishes that we talk about all the time. So he's in a great position to give me some really interesting observations. And we were discussing my latest tank, and Ty was like, hey, you know, that tank looks really, really similar to what I dive in. It would be incredible to to house, uh, you know, he's mentioning a bunch of fishes, and then he said, you know, what about the neon tetra? And I just like stopped for a second. I was thinking, God, it's weird. That was a fish I was thinking about. And it's a fish that, you know, it's been worldwide in the hobby for almost a century. And it's about as common as, you know, a box of Kleenex, as one of my fish geek friends likes to say. Um, yeah, really, when was the last time you saw this fish displayed in an aquarium that represents its natural habitat in a really accurate way? I mean, it's not that often, right? It's not even used in biotope aquariums all that often because people tend to choose those sexy, you know, kerosins or uh, angelfish or dwarf cichlids or whatever. Meanwhile, the fish that everybody knows, this blackwater fish that's found in is, that's found in interesting environments, is typically found in clear white water, high concept, you know, quote unquote nature style planted tanks, which have absolutely no resemblance to the nat- natural habitat that it comes from. It just screams to be included in, in a really cool environment like that, doesn't it? Yeah, it's kind of cool to have friends in interesting places like Ty to sort of ground you once in a while. That simple conversation drove home what I believed for so many years, that a common fish is, you know, can be kept in an uncommon context, and that's kind of uncommon, isn't it? It is. And Ty summed it up most eloquently, I think, when he stated, just like in his wonderful British accent and sounded so right, he said it's important to look at things from different angles and revisit things, because then we rediscover why we fell in love with them in the first place. I couldn't have said it better myself. And that pretty much says it all. Looks like I'm going to be quarantining some neons for my new tank. Kind of excited. Can't wait to have these fish again. And to see them in a whole new light. And I hope you do the same. Until next time, stay inspired. Stay curious. Stay loyal. 
stay bold, stay dedicated, and always stay wet. And again, thanks so much for your support of this podcast. Um, hopefully, we'll just get better and better as I get more and more used to it. And maybe it'll become a little more of a uh, conversational thing instead of me uh, um, you know, spouting forth some of these ideas. And we'll have some, some guests. Ty's going to be coming on soon. We'll have a nice discussion with him about the natural habitats their fishes come from. And we'll have some other interesting guests, I think, uh, in coming weeks and months. So hope you enjoy it. If you have some ideas for future podcast topics um, or blog post topics, just let me know. And anything we can do to improve this, make it a better experience for you, um, please don't hesitate to, uh, to let me know. Thanks again for your support. We'll talk to you soon. Have a great day. Bye now.